Hello and welcome to Rear View, the show where we get to chat to fascinating people from the motoring universe and learn how they got to where they are today. Hello, I'm Andrew, and this is episode one. For this inaugural show, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Nir Khan, who's been kind enough to chat to me on Twitter in the past about a variety of motoring-related subjects, and now has agreed to talk to me on this podcast. Without further ado, I shall move straight on to our conversation. Hello and welcome. I'd like to introduce tonight's guest, in fact, the first guest of Rearview, the new show from the Motoring Podcast crew. And tonight's guest is Nir Khan. Good evening, Nir. Good evening. Could you do us a short introduction of who you are, what you do, etc.? Uh, yes, I'm, well, I'm Nir Khan. I'm the director of design for a company called Plasan that you've probably never heard of. Um, but we do um, a lot of work in uh, vehicles, in lightweight vehicles, composites, um, originally and uh, especially in the military realm, in uh, armoured vehicles. Um, but more recently in, uh, in the civilian area, uh, applying composites to, uh, to ordinary cars, the kind of cars that we'll all be driving soon, um, to, to take weight out cost effectively. That's, that's what we do. And I'm responsible for, for design over the company. Excellent. Thank you for that. Now, we've met on Twitter, and just to let the listeners know, that will be a theme through most of the rear view. That's how I, that's how I first get in touch with people is via Twitter. So, but we've, we've met, inverted commas, air quotes here. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. hurt myself later for doing that. I'm sorry. Uh, on Twitter uh, a while ago, and we got chatting about cars. Uh, and then after we were chatting about cars, I found out the other stuff, you know, what you do for the daytime when you're not on Twitter chatting to me inanely about cars. So I, I'm fascinated with that, but I don't want to start there. I would like to go a bit further back because you didn't start out as wanting to be a uh, military vehicle designer, did you? No, absolutely not. I kind of I fell into that um, basically because I moved back to Israel. Um, I, I was born in Israel. I grew up in Britain, as you can probably hear. Um, my whole life wanted to be a car designer. Um, I was the little boy playing with Lego, making cars out of Lego, drawing cars in the corner of my maths book. Um, always wanted to be a car designer. Um, towards the end of university, also realised that I wanted to move back to Israel. I ended up in a country that isn't exactly known for its uh, for its car industry, <laughs> um, and well, the, uh, fell into um, designing military vehicles, armoured vehicles um, that that protect. Um, Initially thinking it was going to be a short-term thing, you know, the idea was you know, spend a year or two doing this, making some contacts, and then go off and do something else. Um, the truth is it, it became fascinating. Um, the breadth of the, the kind of projects that I was doing, it was uh, always different types of vehicles. And then coupled with gradually moving the company towards uh, non-military work um, and, and actually turning a company that was doing military vehicles into a company that was doing ordinary cars, which was always what I'd, that was kind of the dream. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I've, I've been in this company for a long time. It's 15 years now. All right. Wow. Um, so when you said that you uh, were the kid in the corner, always drawing in the corner of your math book and all the rest of it. So what, what's your first, do you have a first memory of cars that you can think of? Uh, and why did you, why were you drawn to cars? Um, I've, I've always loved cars. I mean, you talk about early memories was 
what, what flashes into my head is the, the wallpaper I had as a kid of uh, Mini Coopers and uh, Escort Mexicos and stuff. Um, I've, <laughs> yes. I've been, I mean, you, you can, as, as, as with many people who have uh, a bit of petrol in the blood, I suppose you can probably blame my dad a little bit. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, he, he, was, uh, he was also very much into cars. Um, he used to race back in South Africa where he was where he grew up um so that's you know that's just always cars have always been around me it's always been part of my life really um that and Lego <laughs> um as I you know growing up playing with Lego um building cars out of Lego and eventually realizing uh, I say eventually realizing I, I originally wanted to be a Lego designer if you know oh, right. yeah, yeah. if, if you'd have asked me when I was about seven or eight <laughs> I'd have told you I wanted to be a Lego designer um but about that age, you know, maybe nine, ten years old, realised that all I ever built out of Lego was cars, and that actually it was it was the cars was the thing, and the Lego was just the medium. Um, so, as I say, I've, I've just been surrounded by cars, really, um, always starting <laughs> from matchboxes through to the radio control cars, and uh, until eventually I could get into the real thing. <laughs> okay, so you, so your dad uh, was a race driver, and that's um, and did did he encourage you to get into car to further this love it or to just let you explore all on your own um he didn't he certainly didn't push me towards that um i don't think it would have even crossed his mind that car design was a was a was a profession um but uh yeah as i say cars were always around us there was always you know a, a, an old 850 coupe that was getting uh restored in the garage and uh oh. he was always you know, <laughs> Toy, toys involved, uh, uh, say a, a matchbox power truck slot car set or a, a Tamiya radio control car. That's I was so I suppose to a certain extent I was perhaps uh, subtly pushed towards it. <laughs> um, but uh, as I, I, I think um, it's it's you know cars can often be a bit of a genetic disease. Yes, yes, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm afflicted. Uh, <laughs> I must say, uh, years of um, magazines being left in the toilets. And exactly that exactly. sort of thing uh and then then you find out that your dad actually did own some cars that were quite cool that you just thought oh this is a car and then you went why does no one else have this sort of thing um yeah no i i i know that one well that yeah one that's well. It's, it's, exactly it's it's you know it's reading reading the reading the auto car that's uh lying there on the table and then eventually it becomes your subscription that he's reading rather than his subscription that you're reading yes <laughs> <laughs> so did you Pass your test at 17, or did you I, wait? I passed my test at 17 years and three months to the day. Ah. Uh, I, my, my first lesson was on, my seven, on the morning of my 17th birthday. Um, eight o'clock in the morning on, the, on my 17th birthday, I had my first lesson. One lesson a week, and three months later, I had a license. That was, uh, I, I was wasting no time. Excellent. Uh, did you... Then were you then given freedom to the family car, or did you get yourself a car, or was it were you? Did you have your own car? Um, my well, uh, initially had access. My dad at the time. This is a bit of a sad story, actually. My dad at the time had a, uh, a, a rancher, a Matra rancher. Oh no! And so the pretty much the first car that I drove after I got my license was uh, my dad's rancher. I remember the, the night of, you know, I passed my test and that very evening was already seven up with all my friends in the rancher, um, thinking how crazy it was that within hours of getting your license, you were allowed to just 
drive around at night with seven friends in the back of a macho ranch. Um, <laughs> the, the reason it's a bit of a sad story is because within about three months, I, I wrote off the macho rancho. Oh, I, no. I am embarrassed <laughs> to say that, and it was it was my dad's fiftieth birthday. Oh. I am embarrassed to say I am personally responsible for killing a rancho. Uh, and, and you've, all, and you've and, almost and peaked car-wise. <laughs> exactly. A, a lot of your listeners and a lot of my followers are going to be very upset about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, the flip side was that having... having it, 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 I say wrote it off. I mean, it, 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 I wrote it off at about five miles an hour. Um, <laughs> it, just, it, just fold, it just folded right up to the end. Um, the flip side of that was that soon after that, I did get my own car, um, which was a 1972 Mini 1000. Um, did you yeah. did you modify that in any way? I did a little bit. Um, it, I, it was a lovely little car. It, it was one. It, it was the kind of the um, the archetypal one lady owner. Um, it was a family friend. It was the mother of a family friend. It had. It was twenty years old at the time. Um, it had done twenty seven thousand miles in twenty years. One lady owner. Oh no. Um, <laughs> And it was it was really fairly tidy. It needed I did a bit of you know I, I gave it a I personally gave it a respray using Palford spray paint, but I did a fairly good job of it. Um, it needed a new rear subframe and stuff like that. It needed a bit of doing up. Um, unfortunately, um, a car that's done twenty seven thousand miles in twenty years has generally done it pottering to the shops around Manchester where I was living. And the first time I took it out onto the M sixty two, it saw seventy miles an hour and the engine went. Oh no. Um, I, I had a, an unfortunate incident in the Mini on the M62, actually, myself. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, no, that's a pure coincidence, but yes, uh, <laughs> I'm with you there. Oh, no, that's... Yeah, that, that, is, that, that is a problem, isn't it? That they, um, that they sit there just pootling along, and then all of a sudden you go, no, no, you're meant to stretch your legs. They go, I don't stretch my legs. Yeah, that's, so that's exactly what happened to it. And, and because I was already emotionally invested into it, I didn't do what any sensible person would have done with a 20-year-old Mini with, with no engine and throw it away. I, I put a new engine in it um, and spent the next two years putting new engines in it. I actually went through six engines in two years. Uh, was that because you were upgrading them or they were not very well <laughs> i think it was a bit of, it was a little bit of both it was a little bit of badly reconditioned engines Jesus, i kept going back to the same place they, they were they were all replaced under warranty um, it was a, <laughs> they just they just they i didn't get more than about a thousand miles out of did they out fold of soon after <laughs> um i think they probably did um it, it was partly you know badly reconditioned old engines um it was partly um over enthusiastic driving it was partly replacing the filter with a 10 quid open filter from the local place in coventry um and it was and a straight through exhaust and mini light wheels and all the other stuff that you do um <laughs> but uh, i i i made that um that critical mistake of constantly thinking okay now it's working so now i better keep it to get my money's worth yeah. and then you know Six weeks later, seven weeks later, something else goes wrong. It wasn't just the engine; it was the, it was the electrics. It was it was a horrifically unreliable car. And then I just kept throwing money at. So that dirt cheap twenty year old mini ended up costing me a fortune. Yeah, I think we've all been there. Where there's listeners yeah. nodding along to that, going, <laughs> "Oh yes, yes, <laughs> I know that one." <laughs> so, um, what caused you to eventually part with the mini? Was it a flash of common sense? Uh, and I say common sense for 
non-petrol heads um, because I totally get what you're saying. You say, well, no, I'm, this, this car's going to be fine. It's, there won't be a problem now. Yes, oh, oh, well, that was a different issue that needs fixing, so that's not the same thing, so that's all right. Or was it just a case of it died completely? No, it just, you know, the, the sixth engine went, and I'd, 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 love, I'd love to call it a flash of common sense, um, but if it was a flash of common sense, I'd probably have replaced it with a nice, sensible car. <laughs> um, and I replaced it with um, a Lancia Y10 Turbo. That's a brave choice. It was a brave choice. I, I, I want, well, I wanted something else interesting. Um, I looked at it, I, I nearly bought a Sud. I nearly bought all kinds of things. Um, and then just, you know, in the classifieds came across this Y10 Turbo and tried it out. And it was unbelievably fast. It, was certainly, <laughs> it certainly was when I was 19 years old. And I'd, I'd actually like to drive it again to find out if it's still as fast as I remember it being. But it, it had, it was you know, 110 horsepower, but it only weighed about 700 kilos. Um, it, was, it was really very, very quick um, and subtle. It wasn't a car that grabbed attention. It was different. It was a Lancia Y10, but it wasn't something that anybody would have expected to be quick. So it was, it was, it was a lot of fun because it was very good at surprising people. Yeah. Um, very, very good at surprising people. And how long did that last? Well, I, 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 say I, I joked that I would like to say that it was a sensible decision and then chose a car that really shouldn't have been a sensible car. Um, but it was, it was a brilliant buy. I paid 800 quid for it. Um, and kept it for three years. I did 30,000 miles on it and sold it three years later for 500 quid. It cost me 300 quid over, oh. over three years, 30,000 miles, and basically nothing went wrong with it. That is bangonomics, that is. Yeah, yeah it really is. It's proper bangonomics. The, the only thing that went wrong, at, at one point I thought I'd blown the turbo um, and then discovered that actually what I'd done is bent the, um, the throttle pedal. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, Pressing the throttle, pedal, throttle, I, yeah, throttle by, pedal even too hard. Is a little bit too much pedal to the metal. And I, I, <laughs> it suddenly became, it became very, very slow. And for a week, I thought I'd blown the turbo and then went down into the footwell and realised that I'd bent the, 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 the pedal was just about to fall off. <laughs> so I, I, with with a, a coat hanger and some string, rigged myself up a manual throttle to drive it back, I was at university at the time in Coventry, um, to drive it back to Manchester, drove all the way back to Manchester with this um, uh, hand throttle that I'd put together and uh, replaced the pedal. That was, that was basically all that went wrong with it in, in three years. So what did you, and, and I'm sorry, I, I, I sound pained as I ask some of these questions because I'm wincing because I, I'm fearful of the answer sometimes, but um, what did you swap the Lancia for? Okay, I swapped the Lancia for the car that I'd always promised myself. I, when I was a little boy, I promised myself that by the time I'm 21, I will have a Fiat X19. Oh. Time, oh. and I also promised myself that by the time I was 30, I would have a Ferrari Dino. So I was 21 and a half, and I still didn't have my X19. And uh, despite being a poor student, I realised that if I don't buy an X19 at 21, then I won't have a Ferrari Dino by the time I'm 30. I love the logic. Yes. Yes. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm now 41, and suffice it to say, still don't have a Ferrari Dino. <laughs> but I did have a Fiat X19, a beautiful, beautiful. For people who know X19s, I had a a Lido, 
which was the it was the run out special edition of the last of the line of the 1300s before it became the 1500. I'm going to geek out a little bit here. Um, so it was the it was it was black with uh, kind of white leather and Alcantara interior and chrome bumpers and chrome trim. In in my opinion, and in a lot of aficionados, it was the, it was the the nicest X19. You must have been the coolest student in. The West Midlands, let alone Coventry. Well, I, I would have been if it wasn't, of course, that I was studying car design. <laughs> um, so we all had cool cars. Um, I say, well, well, it, it was it was a it was a pretty cool car. I'm not going to deny that it was a pretty cool car as a student. Um, but you know, you we would go karting, would drive up to Leicester, and there would be a convoy of like ten cool cars, of which the X19 was just one of them. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was a great car. It was a great great car. I loved that car. And how long did that stay in your ownership then? Um, nearly two years. I, I sold that um, literally the night before I left Britain <laughs> um, and have regretted it ever since. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I didn't really have much choice. I mean, it was, it was right-hand drive. There would have been no point trying to Keep ship it over. It was, there was no... Tricky making that hand luggage, I suppose. Uh, exactly. And despite my best efforts to... You know, kind of leave it in Britain so that I'd have something to drive when I went back. Um, my mum was having none of that, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and I, I, literally, I literally sold it the night before I, I left the country. Um, sold it to a for a, for not very much money. I lost it. it I say lost it. I, I sold it for less than I paid for it, um, but sold it to a X19 specialist um, on the proviso that he absolutely sells it on to another enthusiast and, and doesn't just strip it for parts or anything like that. But he, he knew what it was, so he knew that wasn't going to happen. Oh, excellent. Um, and, I, and I do know, having checked later on the, the DBLC website, it, uh, it, it, it had an MOT for at least another five years or so, which is a pretty good guy. Yeah, all right, excellent. So you, you then go to Israel, um, sobbing as you leave, obviously, not Britain, but the car. <laughs> um, so what do you get when you get over to Israel? Well, I, I had a couple of carless years. Um, and, you know, having to make it out in a new country and uh, in Tel Aviv, it's, it's, Tel Aviv's a bit kind of like New York in terms of cars or, or the centre of London. It's just not a okay. place to have a car. Yeah. Um, so I, I had about two or three carless years um, before um, buying my first Alpha. Um, I, I should probably point out that other than the Mini, I've only ever had Italian cars. Um, so I, I you're showing I, off now, really. <laughs> I, I bought my first in Israel. I bought in. I bought my first new car. I bought a, a an Alpha One Four Seven. Um, just when it came out, really, I hadn't been out for very long. I bought a One Four Seven, and and kept it for a long time. Kept it for seven years. <laughs> um, again, having having bought it new, it kind of made a bit more sense than uh, than than uh, throwing money at old cars. And and mm-hmm. again, despite the reputation of Alphas. Seven years, hundred and eighty thousand kilometers I put on it, and again, basically nothing went wrong with it. A um, couple of thermostats; they last exactly seventy thousand kilometers, um, <laughs> and uh, and a clutch. That's that was basically it. Well, you can't really argue too much with that. So, what did you move on to next? Oh, uh, from, from here on in, it's just been a string of alphas. Um, One five. That's not necessarily a, a dreadful thing. No, I say uh, you need to realise that the market out here is slightly different. Um, first of all, cars are expensive, very, very expensive. Mm. Um, there's 107 percent tax here, um, so that whatever, seems quite high. Yes, <laughs> whatever whatever the list price is in Britain, and Britain's not exactly cheap. Um, you can you need to add about 50 or 60 percent, and that's that's what we pay out here. Oh, ouch! Um, and there's also not very much choice. There isn't a huge car culture here, so there's not a lot of choice. So on the second hand market, there isn't like a in, in Britain the 
Europe generally, the most sensible thing to do is to buy like you know, a nice two-year-old car that's finished its or had its big depreciation and it's been well looked after and you can get something interesting. Um, you can't really do that here. Um, just the economics don't work like that. Um, anyway, so, so I bought the 156 um, largely just because I'm now the, I, due to a growing family. In the meantime, I got married. I'd, uh, when I, I got the 156 when, when the second child came and I realised I needed rear doors and something. <laughs> yes. Um, that, or, uh, that or a chiropractor just on hand at all times. <laughs> Um, and replaced the 156 with a Julietta um, and I'm now on my second Julietta mm-hmm. and that's, that, that's basically my, that's my car history um, there's the, three years without a car and seven years with the 147 you know, t- ten years with one car means that it's, uh, it's not a huge number of cars for, uh, for somebody my age and certainly for somebody my age who's a big car enthusiast um, but that's, that's the full history Ah, excellent, well you've got some crackers in there yeah, I've, I've, there's nothing I'm. Yeah, there's nothing I'm disappointed with. There's nothing I'm. There's nothing ordinary in there. Um, no, I'm, I'm, no, they're not. They're not ordinary at all. Not at all. So um, you mentioned you were at university and you were doing automotive design. Yes. What does that? If you could educate a luddite like myself, what does that actually entail? Because there's sometimes I see the occasional sketch being thrown out from uh, university Twitter handles and stuff like that, and it, and it. it it's this concept, but they'll say, you know, the future in 50 years or something, and it's this bizarre-looking vehicle. But obviously, well, sorry, not obviously, but I am presuming you don't just get to sit there with your crayons and felt tips and go and be told, sketch away, it's all right, nothing, it doesn't matter, just keep going. There there must be some structure and education to design and why you get to a design. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, car design is a very technical type of design uh, there are other types of design where you can to a certain extent maybe get away with being uh, a felt it fairy as they used to call it <laughs> um, but uh you know car design is a very complicated machine and uh, one of the things that they drilled into a certainly in coventry um, was that if if it can't be made or it doesn't work then it hasn't been designed it's just a pretty drawing <laughs> um and well, that's do- that's excellent because i used to work in architecture and we'd get architecture students and they wouldn't care or they've not been taught to consider the can it be built bit and that that's quite fundamental of a building so it's it's rather pleasing to hear with car design that is a core fundamental element you know that this has to work in this way otherwise it's not a design it's just uh, a picture yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly the, the the first year in Coventry, the, only the very last project in the first year was actually a, a, a car design. Um, you know, we, the, you start off doing engineering stuff, building spaghetti bridges and uh, and things like that. Uh, a lot of emphasis on engineering, on packaging, on ergonomics. Um, you know, projects. We used my mini at the time of, and, and measured it all up and did uh, kind of a full technical package of of, of the mini. I remember doing. Um, uh, the, the kind of engineering that we learned, um, and, and I'd come from a slightly more academic background than, than most of the other designers on the course had, so I, I, I was I had more of an affinity with the kind of the maths and the physics and the and the engineering. I found that a bit easier. Um, and we, we were learning engineering. Pretty much what they were saying was, you need to understand engineering well enough to be able to argue with an engineer and, and win the argument. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. to be able to, to so when, when and what that means is if an engineer tells you oh no 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 it can't be done you know that's you know, that that 
it can't be done. It can't. We can't bend that metal in that direction, or we can't do this, that, and the other. We don't need to be able to do all of the maths and to prove. You know, we don't need to be able to solve the problem, but we need to be able to show that we know that it can be done. Yeah, <laughs> and, and to point and to point them in the right direction and say, look, it can be done. This is how you do it. Um, I'm not going to sit there and, and do the maths. That's that's your job. Um, but but it can be done, and don't tell me that it can't. <laughs> um, so that's kind of the, the level of engineering that we learned, certainly in Coventry. Excellent. So, what were the sort of? Uh, I mean, you mentioned there that you did the you, you sort of mapped out your mini to explain. Um, space and all the rest of that stuff well what was sort of other projects that you did um one of the first projects was a a, a spaghetti bridge it's a it's a classic engineering student project you've got a, a a meter gap you have to bridge a meter gap with a bridge made entirely out of spaghetti and um it's a, it's a group project and you add what you do is you, you then have to add weights to the spaghetti bridge and the winning team is the one whose bridge carries the most amount of weight without breaking as a proportion of its of its own weight it's the, the most efficient bridge, the one that, for the least amount of weight, manages to carry carry the, the most amount of weight. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting enough, um, a bit relevant to what I'm doing now, um, we asked um, whether we could cook the spaghetti. Oh, right. And yeah, the lecturers obviously thought that that was a crazy thing to do um, until they realised that the reason we wanted to cook the spaghetti was because we were allowed to glue it together with epoxy. And um, we decided that if we cook the spaghetti, we could actually weave it into a nice epoxy composite and, ah. and make a composite bridge. Um, you could almost make cables. Uh, yeah, well, that, was, yeah, that, that the, the winning bridges. We we actually, be, my my team, we made a beautiful triangulated, um, very very elegant looking kind of a. Victorian style, uh, you know, Brunel style bridge. Mm. Um, the, the the winning ones really had just bundled the spaghetti together into into these great big cables. Those those were actually the, the most efficient ones in the end. <laughs> no wind. So. Yes. So so spaghetti bridge and and just making silly machines with marbles and all kinds of stuff. Um, really just just pushing the boundaries of your creative thinking. Um, that's that's what a lot of the first year was actually about, um, rather than necessarily cars. Um, and as you go forward, there's a lot of more work on on materials, on efficiency, especially. Um, we did a project for a, a company that had developed a um, it was kind of a little shuttle bus um, that worked kind of like a like one of those toys that you get in a Kinder Egg. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, with a, with a great big flywheel. Um, they developed this little shuttle bus with a great big flywheel in the middle of it it was like a meter diameter flywheel in the middle of it the idea being that it would it had no batteries and no engine of its own um it went between stations and when it reached the station underneath the station underneath the road of the station there was like a a, a motor with a spindle that would spin up the flywheel um and then it'll go for about a mile um zero emissions just on the uh, on the inertia of the flywheel oh, and right. so we did we did a project for that company and we did all kinds of stuff Oh well, so it's, I I suppose I mean you you mentioned before, but it's it's to encourage you to think in. I don't want to be too cliche, but outside the box type thing. It's it's thinking it from totally different perspectives um, and totally different ways. You're not trying to be constrained into a way of thinking that's perhaps some, um, not necessarily the artistic side of things, but some sometimes you can get trapped into thinking in only one way. Which gets can get dangerous if you're trying to be innovative and um, 
and creative. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also about preparing us for the actual workplace. You know, everybody who starts a course like this, and you've, you've, you know, all of us had spent 20 years thinking we'd be the only one who drew cars in the corner of our books. <laughs> uh, and, 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 then you, and then you get there to Coventry, and all of a sudden there's a room of 30 of you. Um, and it's great. Um, but the truth is that there isn't, there isn't enough work out there for even for 30 new graduates a year, never mind the ones that are coming off all the other courses. Mm. Um, certainly not the type of work that most people have dreamt about when they start, when they dream about being a car designer. Well, Ferrari every- only takes so many. <laughs> exactly. Not everybody gets to design. This is the bottom line. Not everybody gets to design um, you know, fast red sports cars. Um, and so a lot of, you know, again, certainly in Coventry, and I can't speak about other car design courses, but in Coventry there was a lot of emphasis on um, on very practical kind of work, on the kind of work that you could end up doing. You know, some people are going to end up, as some of my friends are, um, working at companies like Aston Martin, um, and others are going to end up like I did, um, um, designing, well, initially at least, designing military vehicles, um, and you need a, a broad skill set. Uh, yeah I, I can see that uh, you you said it there it must have been it must have been uh great and liberating to be thrown into this mix this room of people that all loved design of cars they lo- they loved to express themselves that way it, i mean it mu- that must have been a such a nice thing to an environment to be thrown into yeah, absolutely i really really was i mean i, I love my time in Coventry, and it's it's 20 years ago already now. Um, but uh, those, those four years in Coventry, as I say, surrounded by other like-minded people, you know, a, a, a convoy of weird cars uh, all driving up to go karting in Leicester, uh, a, a modified Beetle and a, uh, a, a Larder with a grenade engine that was as fast as Melancia was, um, <laughs> and a beautiful BMW 2002 Henrik, if you're listening, um, and uh, I can't even remember to be honest, but uh, yeah, a, a lot of great cars. Um, Uno Turbo, Matteo. <laughs> <laughs> no, so you you finish uni. Um, did you go straight away to Israel then? Um, uh, yes, yes. I mean, uh, pretty much. I mean, I, I, I worked a little bit in Britain as part of uh, as part of the course, as a kind of the, on, on placement. You know, six okay. months on placement as part of the course. Um, where did you go there? I was in a little company in Birmingham called Jubilee Automotive Group. Um, it was a company that did um, kind of commercial commercial conversions, um, ambulances, disabled vehicles, and and taxis. All right. Okay. Um, they they actually, funnily enough, when every time I go back to Britain, I I see the first thing which I ever actually got into production um, while I was in while I was on that placement. Uh, we did a a taxi based on the Fiat Scudo and anybody who you know, oh, a yeah. lot of probably familiar with those things. Um, so the, when I, whenever I land in generally in Luton or in uh, at the NEC, one of the first things I'll normally see is one of these taxis outside and the taxi light on the roof um, was the, uh, I made that mold with my bare hands. <laughs> so that was the very first thing I ever got into production was the taxi light uh, on the roof of those uh, Jubilee taxis. That was that was part of my placement. But that that sorry, that's a little aside because this this is something I found uh, I've personally found very surprisingly pleasing when I worked in architecture. I know it's a different thing, but there's there's a physical thing that I have I have done 
I have I have drawn on a piece of paper. I have done calculations. I have given to someone, and they have built it. And that I made it. I made that happen, as it were, inverted commas. But that must yes. be a satisfying thing when you design a car or a military vehicle or or whatever. That must be. Must I? I presume that gives you a nice buzz as well. There is. I mean, there's no feeling like it. I, I often. It's. Even just today, I can't tell you what it was. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the, the, we're just building a prototype in the workshop right now, and the, the kind of the, the, the bits all arrived this morning. And uh, I said to the guys, "I want to let's 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 see how much we can get it to look like the finished vehicle at least by the end of the day." Hmm. Um, and, and there it was. You know, before I left work this evening, there it was, looking like my drawings. And um, I have to say, you know, the, this was just a prototype. But every time um, I'll see a, a fleet of a, a car park full a field full of of something that i've designed um i always have the same response and i'll, I'll look at this you know you know uh, uh um kind of car park full of 50 the first 50 off the line or whatever it might be and i look at them all and i say to myself i was only joking <laughs> <laughs> because yeah it, there is that element of you, know, you do the drawing and you and you it's real and you're doing it to, to answer some kind of requirement and you're putting a lot of effort into it and uh, you, you, you're taking care of all the important stuff. Um, but there is still that element of, you know, I can't believe that somebody's actually made what I drew. Um, you know, people are actually buying it. It's actually yeah. out there. Um, and um, you know, I think I got to experience that, funnily enough, despite not going to work for a company like Ferrari. I think I got to experience that before most of my peers from Coventry did. Um, because I was, I, was, I was in this, what was originally at least a small company, um, I was the only car designer, and I was given a huge amount of freedom. Um, yeah, they, they just trusted me as being the, the, the car designer, the guy that had come from, from the car design industry, mm. um, who knew what he was doing. Um, nobody else knew any better than I did. Um, and... So I was given this freedom of, you know, of, of designing the vehicle. Um, and the, the first thing which I did, which was kind of a whole vehicle, was a, a Humvee, um, it's the, the military Hummer, mm-hmm. for the Greek military. Um, the Greeks have a, uh, have a fleet of, of Humvee-based vehicles that uh, we designed the, the armoured body for. And that was the first time that I got that... Um, I was only joking. You're going to have to beep that out, aren't you? I was only joking. Um, yes. You get the camp, um, you get the camp siren. I get the siren. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Alan will be delighted. Um, but I, you know, I, I was there looking at a vehicle in total on four wheels that I designed pretty much on my own from, from the sketch. Obviously, when I say on my own, I mean, in terms of the design, obviously there was a huge team working, working with it. And oh, yeah. yeah. But, it, but, in terms, but in terms of the design, in terms of who'd actually done the sketch, um, that was, it was all mine. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I got to that stage before most of my friends had gone into the major car companies. Well, I suppose they would be told you worry about the door handle or the inside of the how the door card looks or something like that. They wouldn't have been allowed the freedom you were because you, you had gone to a smaller company and you'd gone, you know, into a slightly different industry as well. Yeah, that, that was exactly it. I mean, they, 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 they got there soon enough. Um, but yeah, when, when I was looking at this Humvee, they were still basically doing uh, taillights and door handles. Um, 
as a as a stepping stone into what they're doing now, which yeah. is you know, um, chief designer of Aston Martin and places like that. <laughs> Yeah, friends and high, friends and uh, friends high and places. places. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a that's a call out to you, Miles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've we've moved into uh, what you started doing. So um, you say the company was small when you when you first got there, and you were the only car designer. Has that? How is it? How has your role changed over time, or has it not really? It's just the scope. No, it, it, the role has changed as well as the scope. Um, when I say a small company, when we started, when I started there 15 years ago, um, the company had 80 workers, um, was mostly local market, mm-hmm. and was turning over about four million dollars in a good year. Okay, um, um, and it was a, a small company. Um, yeah. They brought me in largely because. Um, of a need to to start to export um, to move into the into the bigger world. Um, yeah. You know, it's to, to put a little bit of context into this. I'm talking about kind of year 2000 2001. Um, it sounds a bit weird to say it now, but Israel was relatively speaking in a place of peace in a in a and there was a lot of potential for more peace. Um, and, and that was a good thing. Yeah. Uh, um, and the local market had been saturated and there was no nowhere to go um mm-hmm. so we were looking to uh to export at the the global market um and so that's what i was brought in to do um and the company grew really quite quickly because unfortunately um 2001 2002 the, the global market changed a little bit um yeah. and and there was suddenly a lot of need you know, I, I should i should emphasize what we do is is the armor is yeah. the protection it's 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 the survivability. It's not weapons. It's not um, it's not the aggressive side of, of military vehicles. Our job is to design vehicles that get people home. Um, there are soldiers who are out there who are doing a job. They're getting sent out to do a job, and our job is to make sure that they can do their job as comfortably and as well as they can, and go home to their families afterwards. Um, and you know, the the Americans, the Brits, the Allies went into Iraq and Afghanistan um, with a largely unprotected fleet. Um, you know, the, the the war that they started or they got into um, was not as I don't need to explain to anybody was not the war that they ended up with. No, uh, I've I've seen a, a few uh, documentaries. I think Mike Mike Brewer did a um, he of uh, Wheeler Dealers did a series on discovery where he went through some of the military vehicles that were used i think it was afghanistan at the time and he talked about how they'd had to change because the perp that what the vehicles were designed for was not what they encountered or yeah, that's, not what that's, they were actually dealing with it was the ieds and things like that sort of stuff yeah that, that's exactly it i mean the kind of the, the plan was a couple of weeks of shock and awe. Um, depose Salam Hussein. The uh, um, his soldiers will drop the keys, and uh, and and that's the end of it. And yeah. what they didn't really account for was who was going to pick up the keys, the keys to the bases, and who what they were going to do with all the high end explosives that they found there. And as I say, the rest is history. I don't need to talk about this. But um, but what they had was a fleet of soft logistics vehicles. You know the the Humvees that the Americans had weren't protected. The trucks that were supply trucks 
and uh, and and people carriers weren't protected. They were they were designed to be behind the lines. Yeah. Um, and they suddenly found themselves in a war where there were no lines. There was no behind the line. There was no you know line of tanks protecting the front line and and then unarmored trucks bringing them food and water and and fuel. Um, the, the trucks that were bringing food and water and fuel to, to throughout Iraq and Afghanistan were all essentially frontline, and they were getting hit by, as you say, IEDs, as improvised explosive devices, and worse. So our first project for the for the U.S. military was a retro a retrofit kit to up armor um, one of their trucks, a truck called the MTVR, um, uh, an Oshkosh truck, a truck by a company called Oshkosh, Oshkosh Trucks in Wisconsin, um, who became a very big customer of ours. Um, and we designed a kit um, that was a, an easy to assemble kit, and we and it was made out of composite materials. So it was it was protected to a very high level of protection using composite materials, despite being lightweight. Um, and that kit was sent by trucks straight through Jordan from Israel, um, straight through to, uh, to to the field, with an instruction manual not dissimilar to an IKEA instruction manual, um, and, and the and the soldiers in the, and the soldiers in the field up armoured their trucks um, with this kit that we'd sent them, and it was uh, and it, and it very very rapidly started to save lives, save a lot of lives. Um, and that was the start of a uh, of, of a large number of vehicles that we ended up designing for the for the U.S. military, for the British military, for the oh, for the Portuguese, for the Dutch, for the uh, Australians, for for all sorts. Um, and we, and we 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 you know, what started out as retrofit kits, what was known as add-on armor or applique armor. Um, we came to the industry and we said, look, that that was fine. When you when you've already got the vehicle, um, the, the most efficient way is to design the protection as part of the vehicle, and to we so we started to actually design the vehicles basically from the chassis up. All right. Uh, so the we would always be our customer was generally the a truck manufacturer of some description, okay. whether that was Navistar or Oshkosh Trucks or AM General that make the Humvee um, or, or any number of others, um, and they would do the automotive design they would uh, design the 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 chassis and we would do chassis up we would design that armored body um and designed to protect designed to to serve and protect um but also designed to be easily manufactured and this was a this was a big key um was designing and this is this is what happens when you ask a kid who grew up playing with lego to well design, when you were sorry I, I, yeah when you as soon as you were talking about the lego i was thinking Oh wow! All right, I really see the connection. Um, it, absolutely, that it's 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 building blocks, isn't it? And oh, I just I, I was sort of going, oh, that's what, of course, yes. <laughs> Sorry, I've just cut you off, but yeah, when no, you were no, mentioning it before, I mean, there there is, there is a connection. <laughs> um, you know, traditionally, an armored vehicle is a welded steel box. That's what an armored vehicle has traditionally been, going back to the first tanks from the First World War. Um, it was it's an armored steel box. Um, we were coming with composite materials, um, which uh, yeah, they're often there's often a metal element. It's often a metal composite, uh, you know, layers of ceramics and and Kevlar and fibers and and metals. Um, but to this, that welding it as a as a box isn't really an option. Um, certainly not an efficient one. Um, and so we designed our vehicles as kits, bolted and bonded flat pack kits, so that we could so all the composites could be easily manufactured in bite-sized chunks. 
Um, so we're using autoclaves and the same kind of stuff that you would use to make a, a, an aeroplane or a Formula One car. Um, but whereas a Formula One car, you spend three or four days laying it up, putting it in the autoclave for three or four bakes over a couple of days, and then spend another four or five days stripping it down. Um, we designed everything as a kit. The parts were going into the autoclave. They're going piled up on shelves, kind of 10 high and two deep. Um, so from a single 90-minute or two-hour autoclave cycle, we're getting enough parts out for five or ten vehicles. Um, right, that's, and, and that's and, interesting and, because you, you, you're, you're actively looking at the economies of the production of this as well as um, the, the obviously the safety side from a protection point of view. Absolutely. I mean, and that, that really was the key. It was, um, it was that kind of triple hit of real design for manufacture uh, and, and manufacturing capability to, to, to ramp up production really quite rapidly. And I should say we, we, we peaked at over 1,000 vehicles a month. 1,000 um, vehicles a month in, in this industry, is, that's a lot of vehicles. Mm. I mean, that, there's, there's a lot of very significant sports car manufacturers out there that don't, don't reach half that or a third of that, mm. um, and, and certainly not out of composite materials. Um, you, nobody makes vehicles out of composite materials at those kind of rates um, because they generally make them the same way that you make racing cars. There's this homogenous um, you know, carbon fiber shell. Um, so by breaking it down into these bite-sized chunks, it allowed us to, to mass produce. The kits could be um, manufactured over multiple sites. They wasn't all coming out of Israel. There were, you know, um, towards the end at least, you know, 80% of the manufacture was taking place in the States. Um, we can transfer manufacture locally for anybody who wants it locally manufactured. The kits arrive just in time on an automotive um, assembly line, um, a truck line, a, a, a line that's basically been building trucks for the last 60 or 70 years in most cases. Um, and what we showed was that you can assemble a composite armoured vehicle on a production line next to your traditional aluminium and steel soft cabs. Um, and that these composite armoured vehicles could actually withstand the, 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 um, the impacts of, of these rather large explosions and blasts that were taking place, uh, especially out in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and... and what we started to do um, was look at how we can transfer some of this technology. Um, and again, this is, you know, I'd, I'd been pushing towards this from my first day in the company of, you know, we, we have these autoclaves, we have these facilities. Um, it doesn't have to be military vehicles. There's all kinds of things that we can do with this. Um, and, and with the technologies and, uh, that, that we developed. Um, so the, the technologies that we developed were partly manufacturing technologies. It was partly about design and engineering. It was about analysis. It was about the, the FEA, the finite element analysis of these composite materials, how they behave in a blast, how they believe, behave in a crash. Mm -hmm. um, you know, high strain analysis of these composite materials. And it's, it's given us a capability that um, actually most of the civilian automotive industry actually doesn't have. Mm. Well, just from, from from just from that bit there alone, I've got about four or five questions yeah, I've just left in mind. First of all, if I just take a step back, you said, you said um, traditionally uh, military vehicles are a, for all intents and purposes, a steel box welded together. Now, 
with do composite materials i've got two questions here the first one is do composite materials help in dissipating forces i mean i i i presume part of the problem is you've obviously got to withstand a direct hit but then the other issues are the forces generated by the explosion can uh, affect different parts of the structure in different ways um so does have you found that or did you know that composite materials and the flat pack system you know you're you're talking sections at a time does that help dissipate um forces in uh in a more advantageous way than a steel box uh yes it's a two-part question you're gonna ask me the second part Uh, well the second part was going to be um which i probably should have started with the steel boxes is that because they're basically one structure is that why they have the angles to try and deflect impacts Okay, so the, the, the reason that I mean, a lot of my designs, anybody who's, you, if you go on the internet and do a search for Plasand vehicles or for any number of American acronyms like MRAP, MATV, JLTV, um, or, or our own Sandcat, I'll come on to that, um, you'll, you'll, you'll see my designs. And they are, there's a lot of flat edges, a lot of um, um, uh, straight edges and, and flat surfaces, largely because of limitations of how to manufacture the materials. Um, if it was pure composite, then you can make all kinds of compound curves. Um, but there is generally a metallic element in there, and it's a you know a, a high hard steel or an ultra high hard steel, um, which can't easily be pressed into shapes. Um, mm-hmm. At most, you can give it a bend. Um, so the traditional steel boxes, yeah, it's it's welded corners. They're angular because they, it's all welded together. It's it's flat sheet metal welded together, for bent and, and welded. And I suppose uh, there's a cost element to that as well. You, and there's a cost element to that as well, yes. And, and also with our kind of flat pack, that, you know, part of the idea of the flat pack was that the individual parts weren't too bulky. We were shipping them, you know, shipping them all the way across the world. Um, so you don't want big, complex, three-day, three-dimensional shapes in a single sub-assembly. Um, but yeah, the, the kind of the first part of your question, or um, yes, it's it's all about absorbing energy. Um, you know, the ballistic side of it, stopping the bullet, stopping a fragment, um, that's one part of the physics. Um, but blast is very similar to crash. It's about deflecting and absorbing energy through the vehicle. Um, a lot of people will tell you that composites aren't very good at that, um, and it's simply that you're, if you design a composite structure and expect it to behave like a metallic structure then what you end up with is a spaghetti bridge <laughs> um, that's, 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 that's going to you know, take weight to a certain level and then just go and, and, and smash. Um, but if you understand the way that composites work and you understand how to anal- analyze them and you understand the, the delamination that can go on between the layers and you understand the intermingling of the different threads and how, you can, you know, how every single thread that, that breaks inside that composite material is taking energy with it, and once you can start to understand that on the on the micro level um, and manage it, um, then yes, you can absorb a lot of energy with composites. You can absorb a huge amount of energy with composites. Um, the bolted and bonded structure also takes some stresses out of the corners. Takes some, you know, a welded steel box will generally crack open along the welds or next to the welds. Um, the bolted and bonded structure allows you to design where what's bending and what's breaking and what's taking the energy with it um and really direct that energy through the vehicle it's very much like crash it's it's just the same as the as as the front end crash of a vehicle it's all about crush zones and where's your energy going and how do you maintain the safety cell in a in an underbody blast the big issue generally is not 
penetration of the of the floor. It's generally, you know, once you're beyond a certain level, at least, it, it's not fragments coming through the floor and 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 ripping through the people inside. It's the shock. It's the accelerations. If you if you can imagine the violence of a blast underneath a vehicle that can lift an 18-ton vehicle two metres up into the air or three metres up into the air. It's a huge amount of energy, and it's doing it in, my, in, in milliseconds. Mm. And then it comes crashing back down again. Um, it's really the, protecting the occupants inside is about isolating them from that impact. I was going to say, the soft, squidgy bits inside are, are soft, really vulnerable at that point. Exactly. If you can imagine making an egg box out of welded, high-hard, military-grade steel, and then throwing it from the top of the tallest building in your city. Um, well, the, the box probably will survive the fall. The eggs inside won't. Um, and, and that's what we do. You know, to protect the eggs, it's a whole different story. It's about, and it's about the technologies that go inside. Suspended seats and floating floors and energy-absorbing structures inside and um, just having, not having sharp edges inside and you know, soft surfaces and making sure that there's enough clearance between the, uh, the, the, the commander and his uh, radio racks so that he doesn't smash his head on the radio rack in a blast. Yeah. Um, it's, it's other systems inside the vehicle, whether it's fire suppression, automatic fire suppression systems and, uh, and, and filtration systems, all kinds of other things. Like our, our job is, is it, we describe it as survivability. It isn't just about armour, it's about survivability. It's about the guys and girls inside the vehicle surviving and going home. No, no, yeah, I, I can see that. Um, I, I did um, some commercial diving for a couple of years and I worked with people who uh, worked with explosives underwater and it's that whole thing that the, the um, because of the medium of water, then an explosion gets amplified in terms of the effect it can have on the body so i I totally get where you're coming from about the uh the inside of of the egg box and all that um you you, you talk about water i mean there's there's an entire science Uh, when we test these things i mean obviously we 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 analyze and then we test we take them down to our site in the desert and blow them up um and there's a there's a whole science about the nature of the earth around the explosive that you've buried under the ground um how wet it is how much water there is in there and, and as you say the the more water can make it um an order of magnitude more powerful mm. the exact same explosive buried under the ground when you flood it can be significantly more powerful than than when it's in dry sand or dry dry earth yeah, I can I can really understand that. Uh, but the, the the next main thing that I thought of when you were talk, you were describing um, what happened was that the company, it, looking at it from a business point of view, that's that's quite an agile and um, nimble company. With the pro, the ideas that you said you could go into another plant, the way things could be done on someone else's site and that sort of thing, and you could modify etc. That's that's manufacturing isn't typically known for being nimble and agile, but that just sounded like such a nimble and agile process and ethos, really. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the company is, you know, very much a, a creative and agile company. And, and we've, we've changed over the years. We've changed with the time according to the market, according to, to different types of markets, as, as I was saying, realising that there was going to be, realising years ago already, um, that there was going to be a day after, um, you know, a day after Iraq and Afghanistan, a day after 
we we we, we pretty much flooded the market. Um, the we we made we designed and made most of the new vehicles that the American military bought over the last ten years. Um, the as I say, there's, there's there's vehicles in use by the UK MOD and and, and many others. Um, and but we started to plan for the day after. Okay, well, you know, what happens when? Um, when troops pull out, what happens when there's no need for more vehicles like this? What should we do with the technologies that we have? Uh, and which is why we got into mainstream automotive. Um, we have a company in the States. Um, um, I haven't mentioned the name of the company, have I? Did I mention have I, uh, in, in the whole time I've been talking, have I actually mentioned the name of the company? No. The company's called Plasan. Company's called Plasan. Uh, no, I did. I, I, I mentioned it at the beginning. So, um, we have in the States a company called uh, Plasan Carbon Composites, a subsidiary um, that deals only with um, carbon composites for the automotive industry. Um, and they make all of the carbon fiber body parts for the Corvette Stingray, um, for the Viper, and for a few others. Um, and they're also made with technologies that have been developed to, to mass produce composites. Now that that must be well, the, the, that must be quite a trick to uh, mass produce them because that's generally been one of the. I mean, you talked about it before because of the way that typically composites are done. It's it's you know for a, a an F one car or something like that. So to be able to mass produce them is uh, very interesting. But the other thing I expect you you guys have had to do is educate the customers that. No, right. What we mean by composites is this, because we do this. And I suppose you you have to do a a bit of that, otherwise you get that perception or prejudice about composites. Yes, there's a lot of that. I mean, I I quite often give give talks at conferences about how to design for composites, about, uh, you know, most companies realise that um, designing for composites, you don't design, it's not... The aerospace for years has talked about uh, black aluminium um, as, a, a, as a phrase that means you, know, you, you you've tried to design your composite, your carbon fiber aeroplane, but you've designed it as if it's aluminium and you just think that you're painting it black is, is, is changing the design from an aluminium design to a composite design. And of course, <laughs> and of course it isn't. Um, but the thing is that most, and, and most people are aware, certainly in the automotive industry, are aware of that, of that pitfall, of that, uh, that potential pitfall of designing black aluminium or black steel. Um, but the thing is that most, a lot of people still think that it's just a question of radii and draft angles. Um, that, okay, so I've designed this part as if it was pressed steel. I now want to make it out of carbon fiber. Um, okay, so so the radii need to be a little bit bigger, and I need a, 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 another half degree of, of draft on it to be able to get it out of the mold. And they think that that's it. Um, but it, it really, I'm talking about it, the entire architecture of the vehicle. <laughs> I'm talking about you really looking at the the whole car's architecture from a structural point of view, and saying, okay, what manufacturing methods are we using for making which bits of the of the car, rather than designing it. As if it's steel. Um, cars have been made out of pressed welded steel for the best part of a hundred years, mm. um, and there's a lot of assumptions that are made about the way a car is built, the way a car is engineered, the way a car looks, that are based on the fact that it's made out of pressed welded steel. Um, and there's a lot of challenges that need to be uh, a, lot, a lot of assumptions that need to be challenged. Um, well, you know, steel is cheap. Steel is cheap and strong. And so it makes sense to use it 
everywhere and to design the car so the whole thing's working for you. It's kind of it's an exoskeleton. Mm. So, you, so the whole steel body is working for you. Now, carbon fibre is expensive, um, and its properties are not the same as steel. Um, it's, uh, it, it, there are certain properties that it's better, there are certain properties that it's worse, depending on how you're measuring it. Um, but it's a lot more expensive. Um, what you don't want to do is just make the whole thing out of carbon fibre. Um, but this is what um, aerospace, to a certain extent, and motorsport, to a massive extent, do. Um, you know, Formula One guys don't try and save dollars. They try and save grams. Mm. So they don't ask the question about whether you know, that particular bracket that's connecting the end plate to the front wing on the Formula One car whether they could get away with doing that in plain old-fashioned fiberglass um, and, and save a bit of cost. They just don't even ask that question. They just make the whole thing out of the highest grade of carbon fibre they can get hold of because that's what they have. Um, so we've been coming into this from a whole different place. So when, when companies in the past wanted a carbon fibre bonnet for their high-end sports car, they'd quite naturally go to the companies that make um, you know, motorsport parts and would come back with a very expensive bonnet that um, takes three days to make. Yeah. Um, and that was fine when all, you, you know, when all you need is you know, a handful of them for the top-of-the-line special edition M3 GTS, whatever it might be. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. So you can say, oh, look, look, that, look at all the weight you've saved and it's cost you more. <laughs> exactly. As, but, as the testers like to do. <laughs> yeah. But when, when General Motors comes to you, and says, we would like to have a carbon fibre bonnet and roof on every single Corvette Stingray, not just the ZR1 or ZR1, as they like to call it, um, <laughs> not just on the, uh, on the, on the top-end model, um, but on the, base, on the base Corvette. Now, the base Corvette, that's a $55,000 car. Mm. You know, that's, that's a £30,000 car. That's in the big scale of things, that's not a very expensive car. Um, it's certainly not a very expensive car to have you know, carbon fiber bits on it as standard. Um, but that's what they wanted. Um, and we were able to do that because we have a, a manufacturing uh, technology, which we call the pressure press. It's an out of autoclave manufacturing uh, uh, um, system um, that has allowed us to make these bonnets and roofs for the Corvette. Um, and that's, that's 40,000 cars a year. You know, it's, it's quite, it's hard to believe it. They make 40,000 Corvettes a year. Um, wow. and I, 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 not long ago, I, I was at our plant in, uh, in Michigan and it's hugely impressive just to see the, uh, the, the rate that these things have been, have been made. And it's, it's mostly an automated process. Um, you know, for automotive, the, 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 the kind of thing you would see on a, on a, one of those mega factories, uh, yeah. uh, shows on discovery or national geographic or whatever. Um, and you, you look at these, these hoods and roofs, um, you know, coming off the line, um, at this massive rate. And what really gets you is realizing that somebody is actually signing the order form for a Corvette at the same rate. Like every 10 minutes, every 20 minutes, somebody signs a, an order form for a Corvette. Um, it's a lot of Corvettes. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, um, Thinking about this, uh, when you're talking about that, that just reminded me of um, Gordon Murray's. uh, Yeah, and is do you is that helpful for you guys because he's trying to show that there is an alternative way. It doesn't just have to be the pressed aluminium and steel and all that sort of stuff. There is there is other ways that we can we can try and crack this egg. 
um, because, as we know, um, the environmental uh, impact and and the strictness of um, emissions from cars is going to get more and more, which means, you know, vehicle engine technology can only do so much. What needs to happen? In, it's it's a combination, isn't it, across a car that the, there's the the powertrain in whatever form that is. Then there's the the weight of the car, and then there's the materials, and all of it's combined. It's it's um, you know it, it's the it is the whole architecture, as you were saying before, of it. So does does someone like Gordon Murray help you guys in spreading this message to the wider world? Yeah, I mean, you know, Gordon Murray's a a, a personal hero, I and mean, he's uh, he's been a massive inspiration to me going back to when I was a kid playing with Lego. Um, and you know, he's a, he's a groundbreaker in terms of applying composites first to racing cars, then to road cars with the F1, and, and more recently with iStream. Um, and it, yes, it certainly helps when you've got a, a big name like Gordon Murray who's who's going out there and and, and telling people Look, there's another way to do this. You can you can mass produce composite materials, iStream. Um, um, yeah, so it, it helps to change perceptions. Um, the the architectural concept um, that we've been working on, and it's it's partly public. I can talk about it a little bit um, with with vehicle manufacturers, uh, with car companies um, in a in a few different countries. Um, is is actually to a certain extent. It's, it's, got, it's there are certain similarities with iStream. Um, there's one fundamental that's the exact opposite of iStream. Um, What's what's similar to iStream is that it's it's looking um, more like a, a, a the car more like an endoskeleton than an exoskeleton. Okay, um, is that it's it's looking at getting the structure on the inside um, and how do you do that cost effectively, um, and then skin it with a non-structural, less structural or non-structural uh, body, um, or, or, or outer panels at least. Mm. Um, the difference is that iStream is is based around um, a kind of a, a tubular steel structure. I don't know um, how familiar you are with iStream. Um, it's basically it's a thin wall steel tube um, that's then that, that on its own um, isn't structural or isn't structural enough to to make a car. Um, and then it's skinned with uh, well either with fiberglass or with carbon fiber depending on the uh, depending on the market um, and then together it works together to create this this inner skeleton um that's that's strong um the architecture that we've developed um actually uses a, a composite manufacturing technology called pultrusion now pultrusion um is kind of the composite equivalent of extrusion so you're probably familiar with aluminium extrusions, uh, the kind of stuff that we'd use to make a window frame or the chassis of a Lotus Elise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that's aluminium extrusion. Um, you, you, you have a, a, a die with a constant section. You heat up the aluminium and push it through the die, and then you get a beam with that constant section of the, of the shape of the die that you've pushed it through. Um, and then you can do some very clever things with aluminium extrusions. As a Lotus makes their chassis like that, Aston Martin makes their chassis like that, Jaguar Land Rover and Audi um, both make pretty extensive use of, of aluminium extrusions in their multi-material architectures today. Um, pultrusion is, I say, is the kind of the composite equivalent of extrusion. So... The reason you call it a pultrusion is because you can't you can't 
push uh, fibers through a die. You have to pull them. Okay. Um, but essentially, you pull the fibers or the fabrics, whatever it might be, through the die, through a kind of the, the bath of the, uh, of the resin. And the, the bottom line is that you get a shape similar to an aluminium extrusion. As long as the section is constant, um, then you can pull through uh, this composite shape. You can mix and match your materials inside that. Again, as long as this in section, it's constant. Um, it's a very cost-effective way to manufacture um, composite parts, but it's very, very limiting in terms of the geometry of it. And mm. um, so our challenge has been, um, let's start the question the other way around. Rather than designing the car and then going out and developing a manufacturing technology that allows me to make parts that look similar to pressed steel parts because car designers and engineers are, are, are naturally and without question designing cars with pressed shapes mm. and, then, and then looking to see how we can press composites cheaply and cost-effectively. Uh, we're looking at it completely the other way around. I said, okay, there's here, here, there is already a very cost-effective way to manufacture composites. It's called pultrusion. Now how do you make a car out of it? So... The um, architecture that we've developed is basically utilizing um, um, these pultruded shapes to make the inner structure of the car, the, the, the pillars and beams and sills, out of these uh, composite pultrusions. And then it becomes a question of how do you put it together, mm. um, which we have a lot of experience in, in, in <laughs> having, having uh, designed all these kitted uh, blast vehicles. It becomes a question of how do you analyze it and ensure that it's actually going to be crashworthy, which is somewhere else where we have a lot of experience. Mm. Um, and then the only remaining question is now how do we make it look like a car um, and, and, and do everything the car needs to do? And this is one of the points where, where I come in as the, as the car designer into this very engineering-heavy topic um, of in, in terms of talking to designers and talking to engineers and, and showing them how it can be done. Um, how you can how it doesn't have to necessarily limit the the, the designer, um, but the, the flip side of that is that the designer can now do things that he couldn't do before. Um, there are you know there are, it, it, that default knee jerk drawing of the shiny red car. That's what I want to challenge. Mm. You know, cars are shiny and red because they're made out of pressed steel. Yeah. Um, they're shiny because steel is shiny and they are painted red or whatever color they we want because you have to paint steel, otherwise it rusts. Now, composites in general and carbon fiber in particular um, isn't naturally uh, smooth and shiny. Um, our pressure press that we use to make the hoods and roofs for the, uh, for the Corvette can make carbon fiber um, very pretty and very shiny and a proper A-class surface. Um, but it takes effort to do that. It takes effort in terms of the, the, the manufacturing process to do that. The cheap, easy way to make carbon fiber parts, it isn't going to be shiny and smooth, and you don't have to paint it. Mm. Um, so now you've got this new toolbox, this new, uh, new kind of set of swatches. You've got a new palette, haven't you? A new palette, exactly. A new palette, a new set of swatches. Now, how do you design it? You know, what's the best way to design a car using this palette? Um, to a certain extent, BMW has started to go down that road with the iCars. Um, the, the aesthetic of the, of the i3 and the i8 um, is very different from the aesthetic of their um, pressed metal cars. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, I always feel when I come up behind an i8 and uh, I concede and worry that perhaps it will, its looks will date it quicker than perhaps older cars 
um, or more traditional designs in our eyes right now because this is what we're used to. But I always come up, if I come up behind one of those or see one of those, I always think, God, that looks like the future. It does. It, it looks does. like the future because there's there's all these different shapes in it and and there's the the, the hollow out use, there's the buttress towards the rear and there's all this stuff going on and you think, oh, that doesn't happen in a normal car because it's not been smacked by a big, huge weight on a bit of metal. Like, like, like exactly, part of that is because the materials that have been used to make the i3, the, the composites and plastics that have been used to make the i3 and the i8 allow designers to do things that they couldn't do out of pressed steel or aluminium. That's part of it. Um, it's partly a marketing exercise of just wanting to differentiate the I line from the from the mainstream line. Yeah. Um, but it's also um, about allowing them to use different materials and allowing each material to be what it is, um, mm. rather than trying to ask it to be something else. Um, rather than expecting every material you've made the car out of to go through the same paint process and to be smooth and shiny so that you can mix and match steel and aluminium and plastics and composites and then just painted all shiny red at the end and, and it now all looks like a car. The i3 and the i8, the whole design language has been designed so that you can mix and match different textures and surfaces and shapes and colours and leave them to be what they are. Yeah, I mean, that's also helping to educate the consumer because the consumer's very conservative with a small c in mm-hmm. what they typically will go and buy. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't all buy cars that generally look quite similar to each other it's the badges the difference there's little there's flourishes and touches but generally cars look the same because that's what people will buy i'm forgetting legislation and certain criteria on that side but generally people want oh well i I want my car should look like this it's like my house should look like this and and it's helping to educate people that there are uh there are other ways that there is a you know there's there's a wider palette as it were there is a wider palette for us to choose from yes and i think bmw has done a massive favor um in when you when you open the door of an i3 and first of all from the outside you actually don't see much if any carbon fiber i think just the 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 roof is a nice pretty exposed weave carbon fiber that's been made really quite expensively to allow it to be smooth and shiny exposed weave carbon fiber Mm. when you open the door the carbon fiber structure that you see, the, the, the sills, the pillars, the, the bits, the kind of the door surround that's exposed, that's all exposed carbon fiber in a very, very natural state. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you've had the opportunity to see it up close, um, it's not pretty. Not in the conventional way that people think the carbon fiber is pretty. Um, it's not a pretty weave. It's unidirectional carbon fiber, which is the most cost effective way to make it. Carbon fiber really doesn't need to be woven. Um, you can see the bond lines. You can see whether that unidirectional we uh, um, um, carbon fiber is 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 gone a little bit wavy in the process, and that's fine. Um, and it's there's a certain amount of customer education that's going on there, um, where BMW is kind of just given a little hint, kind of a little <laughs> a little lift of the skirt, um, and saying, okay, this is what carbon fiber actually looks like. Mm. This is what it looks like when you're using it structurally and manufacturing it as cost-effectively as we can today. Um, Get used to it. This is what it looks like. We don't want to keep having to make it um, shiny and exposed weave because there's really no reason for it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's because it's in there. I've been lucky enough to drive an i8, and and you open the door, and as you say, it's all there. I think every time you get in and out, you see this. So very quickly, through, um, through being exposed to it all the time, it becomes the norm. It's yeah. it's not a 
oh, look at that, as, as I did when the door opened. It's like, oh, God, look at all this. Uh, it's, it, that, that disappears quite quickly. And it's expected. It's, you, know, you, you, you become blasé through, through exposure to it so much. Yes, and I think BMW, have, they're unique in that they could get away with that. Um, they're unique, you know, the, the whole i-series. I don't think any other manufacturer could have got away with that um, in the way that BMW did. I don't think any other manufacturer would have had the, had the guts and the resources to throw that amount of money on an entirely new, you know, vertically integrated manufacturing line and, and uh, just doing everything that they did with those really... As I say, they're, they're cars of the future. Yeah, they, they, um, their badge allowed a lot of their freedom. Badge, they, 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 their, their resources allowed it and their badge allowed it because I don't think that a lesser brand would have even tried to get away with leaving that carbon fibre weave, um, kind of the, 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 the uglier weave, exposed. No, 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 I totally agree because, with you. Because nobody would have forgiven them. No, um, Absolutely. You, without naming names you wouldn't have opened the door on a lesser car uh, from the far east or whatever and then you're the first thing you would have said was oh my god look at that that's awful couldn't you paint it couldn't you cover it couldn't you do it that's so cheap yeah that looks something. cheap uh, bmw could get away with that and and that's, that's why i said they think they've done us a massive favor because that's they're, they're setting a tone they're sending a message that says look this is what carbon fiber is get used to it um yeah it's it's going to be part of cars yeah. for a foreseeable future it's going to be part of cars and in some cars you'll see it, in some you won't. And when you see it, this is what it's going to look like, and it's not a problem. Absolutely, it's not a problem. Right, I'm. I I could talk to you for hours about this, um, but I I don't want to um, take up all your time. Yeah, and I really appreciate you coming on. This, like is, this, to... is, this is already a two commute uh, podcast for me. I'm going to have to listen to it myself uh, going to work and on the way home. I think. Well, that's a, we're here to help you. I mean, if you, if you want, then if you give me some prior notice, I can make sure Alan and I in the Motoring Podcast manage to talk for some. If you've got some big journeys coming up, we can talk for a good long time to get you through those journeys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'd like to move on um, to a section that I, I will have in each show where I'm just going to ask you uh, a few quick fire questions. I'm going to ask you the question, let you answer, and then I will move on to the next question. I won't comment because with some of these questions, I would love to explore the answers, but I, I daren't because, like I say, I, you know, people need to sleep. You they need to go to sleep and design these wonderful, amazing things. So it's totally fascinating what we've just discussed. Um, so I'm going to start here now, if you're all right and you're ready for this. I'm ready. Okay, let's go. So what currently excites you about the motoring world? Um, really, it's the pace of change. I think we're just we're, we're going through a period. I say after a hundred years of welded steel boxes, we're, we're going through a process of change now and a, a pace of change that's just going to see the biggest changes we've seen since the Model T. Okay. Well, what currently worries you about the motoring world? Um, some things that are related to that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but some of the really great car companies and marks that um, perhaps don't realize this well enough and aren't going to aren't going to keep up um and might end up disappearing um that that genuinely concerns me and that some of the more loved car companies um might not keep pace with this uh with the change that's coming up and and might end up disappearing or, or changing beyond recognition so what's been your favorite car that you've ever driven and why was that um i'd, I'd have to go with my x19 
Um, my, it, it's just I've got a purity of handling. It's not an especially fast car, um, but just little mid-engined, completely passive, light, small. You can throw it around roundabouts. You can throw it around anywhere. It's just a lovely, lovely car to drive. I really miss that car. God, that makes me want one even more. <laughs> the, the looks alone were good enough. Right, sorry, I was supposed to not comment. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's been your least favourite car to drive, and why was that? Um, about 15 years ago already, as a loner once, I had a Renault Kangoo, um, and it was as a, one of the, the, the first Renault Kangoo, the original Renault Kangoo. And even 15 years ago, I just remember thinking, I didn't realise that they still made cars as bad as this. Um, <laughs> just, again, it, I, it, it, it's very good at what it does. I mean, it, it's, it's built to purpose, but just, you know, coming out of, you know, having had an X19 and then a string of Alphas and just getting into a car that just had no relation whatsoever between your inputs and the road and what it was doing. I, I don't recall ever feeling that disconnected from the road since I drove a Sherpa van. Um, <laughs> So, so that's so yeah. No offence to Renault today, but uh, fifteen years ago the Kangoo really didn't do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> What's the car you'd like to own next? This is actually a really tricky one for me. As um, I'm on my second Julietta already, the Julia hasn't yet reached Israel. There's, I was I had high hopes for the one two four. Um, but the truth is I can't, I've got three kids now. I can't get away with a two seater. Um, I, I think I'm going to be the waiting for the. Julia when it gets here to see if it's in budget unless Fiat or Alpha um, surprise us with a nice little coupe that's got room in the back for the three of them um, then I think it's probably going to be a Julia Okay uh, What's the favourite road you've ever driven on? Um, my, well my commute to work um, is, is brilliant um, I, I, I live on the coast uh, where I work is up in the hills it's a 30 eight kilometer drive like a 20 mile drive um but it's from from sea level here on the coast up to 850 meters it's basically a hill climb it's a nice windy hill climb and i've done it every day pretty much every day for the last 15 years so when you've got a lovely road like that and you know every last little bump and and, and scratch on it um you can really enjoy it so i, I would i would have to go with my daily commute which i think I suppose it's, a, it's a pretty lucky person who can say that their favorite road is the one they drive every day that's excellent. What is the most pointless optional extra you've had the misfortune to experience? Um, I just, I, I just generally don't like things that add weight to a car without giving significant functionality. I'm a <laughs> really that does surprise me. <laughs> we, yeah, we, we, we talked about Gordon Murray, and, and then the other one who, who's a you know big hero of mine is, is Colin Chapman, of course. You know, any, anything that adds redundant weight to a car or unnecessary weight to a car, and if, if you're talking about options, the one that I would put my finger on um, is electric seats. Um, I just you know that's adding weight and complexity to a part of the car that you really only use once, um, and, and then it just sits there underneath you, taking up weight. I, 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 would, never, I would never knowingly specify electric seats on a car. <laughs> no, that's it. I, I, I like that choice, actually. I like that choice. Right, and this is the final question I have for you. Who do you think we should talk to after you? Um, I'm, I'm going to suggest somebody who I probably should have spoken to first. Um, oh, uh, no, the whole point of this is that they're not forewarned. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so this person hasn't been forewarned. This is a, a friend of mine called uh, Mark Preston. Um, 
Mark is, uh, well, most recently he's been leading the Aguri uh, Formula E team. Um, before Aguri, he was Super Aguri and McLaren and Arrows. He's got a big motorsport uh, heritage. Um, but he's also very involved um, with uh, an organisation called uh, Mobox, which is a mobility, mobility Oxford, I think, which deals with one of your pet subjects. Um, you know, uh, connected cars, future mobility, future personal transport. Um, mm-hmm. He's a guy we've done some work with. Uh, 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 done some work with him on, on composites as well. Um, you, you, he's somebody you can definitely talk to for a, a couple of hours and just want to keep talking to. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. And I will, well, and I will put and I will put you in touch properly. Oh, that's that's very kind of you. Thank you very much for that. Well, Nia, thank you so much for coming on the first show. Uh, it's been Pleasure. brilliant to talk to you. It's uh, really fascinating with what, you, so what you've told me. Um, I, I could talk to you for hours and hours about this to uh, probably geek out as far as I could geek <laughs> without having too much knowledge. Um, but um, if people wanted to uh, get in touch with you or see what you're up to, what would be the best place to do that? Best place to do that is definitely Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter as near underscore Khan, and I should probably spell that for you. Um, N I R underscore, and it's Khan K A H N. Get the A and the H the right way around. Um, that's where you'll find me on Twitter. That's uh, that's how we met as well. Um, and I say it's it's been a pleasure chatting to you. You've been um, you've 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 accompanied me on uh, on my commute to and back from work at least once a week for the last uh, nearly year, I suppose. Well, that's very uh, kind of uh, you. To, um, I'm glad that we could help you along. And, and I often I often find myself uh, you know shouting at the uh, at, at the iPhone in the car to, to and expecting you to respond. So it's been quite nice actually having you able to respond. Well, I, I would probably be saying, well, I totally agree with you, Nia. Alan was wrong, but uh, there we go. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for being on here and um, look forward to uh, being in touch with you uh, on Twitter again. And maybe uh, we can get you back on the show where I can delve deeper. I mean, oh, I don't know. It's just it's, it's, it's just an amazing bit of technology you guys are working on. Uh, and I can, I can see how it can be used in many, many areas. And um, it's, it's brilliant to see how you are actively pushing for that. So um, thank you very much. My pleasure, my pleasure. Do I, do I get to say safe motoring, or is that just Alan's line? Uh, no, you can. Uh, I, I, <laughs> no problem, yes, you can. So until next time. Safe motoring. Thanks once again to Nia Khan for coming on Rearview and chatting to me. I hope you all listening found it as fascinating and as enjoyable as I did. In the show notes, you will see links to Nia's Twitter handle uh, and an interview that he did for Top Gear magazine with Tom Ford, which is an excellent read. So I thoroughly recommend you go and see that. Uh, If you want to suggest someone who you think I should talk to on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag uh, rearviewpod, we'll be guaranteed to see it in Motoring Podcast Towers. As this is a new show, we would really appreciate you rating and reviewing it on iTunes or any other podcast app such as Stitcher, Downcast, Overcast and the like. This will help us get in front of those who are looking for interesting podcasts to try out. It only takes a few moments and it means a lot to the show and myself. So if you do, Thank you very much. Between now and next time, you can give us any feedback and share your thoughts on the show via at Motoring Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, on Facebook, and also via the contact page on motoringpodcast.com, the hub of all our activities. Don't forget, though, use the hashtag rearviewpod, and then that means I will get to see it. If you want to get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter, where you'll find me. And if you'd like to keep up to date with motoring news and opinions, go try out our sister show, if you don't already, which is The Motoring Podcast. 
Please don't forget to leave that rating and review on iTunes. It really does matter to us. So until next time, that was Nia Khan. I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring.